Welcome to Phrenesis, a show dedicated to issues in political philosophy. Each episode will take a close look at important essays and ideas in political and social thought, linking them to historical and contemporary debates, which is to say, finding where they are discussed in the footnotes to Plato. Welcome again to the Phrenesis podcast. Today we have a very special guest. We have Professor Alex Priu, who is an instructor in the Herbst Program of Humanities and Engineering, Ethics, and Society at the University of Colorado Boulder. Um, would you like to give us a little bit about your background, um, where you did your uh, doctoral studies, what you've been working on as of late? Yeah, I did my uh, PhD uh, in philosophy at Tulane. Um, in the history of philosophy, I, I wrote my dissertation on Plato's Parmenides, and that became a book. And primarily, I work on Plato and the pre-Socratics, um, sort of the emergence of the Socratic standard that's become so enduring. Um, it came out of some particular culture, and I'm sort of interested in why that might be, um, while also examining that standard itself, which I did partially in the Parmenides, and then I have a manuscript on uh, the trilogy, the Titus Office Statesman, uh, that, that goes a little more deeply into that. I'm also interested in modern philosophy and things like that. But, um, you know, Benedetti is one of the uh, thinkers and interpreters of Plato who I find most captivating, most intriguing, uh, most original without being, uh, you know, unserious or, or departing from the intention of Plato. Um, and I find that, you know, for that reason, very, very sort of interesting. You get something there you won't get anywhere else. Yeah. This, um, I think was both of our first times reading this essay. I've read some of uh, Benedetti's commentary before. So so today we'll be discussing Seth Benedetti's Strauss on Plato. Um, one of, why, why did you think this was um, a particularly good essay? What what draws you to it? Why do you want to discuss this one? Um, he, you know, he, he wrestles with texts a lot. You know, and he goes through details and texts. And here's one of the few places where he's uh, really wrestling with an individual. Um, you know, when he talks about Strauss, it's not just his writings. That's obviously quite prominent. And there's a number of allusions to his writings, um, but also with his experience, right, with what it meant to him to meet Strauss um, and specifically to hear Strauss talk on Plato, which was um, a very significant experience for him. Um, you know, Strauss wrote on a number of things, but the real connection between him and Benedetti's work is on Plato. I also find it just, it's short and it packs a punch. Every paragraph has some different topic. Um, whereas a lot of his essays will connect the same topic and develop different points within him, approach the same thing through a number of angles. And this does that to a certain extent here. He really has all these really uh, jarring and interesting ideas and provocative statements that um, are excellent food for thought. Also, it's something I've been, thinking about a lot lately and so when you asked you know what essay i was like well of course this one yeah, we were just talking before you called in uh about how looking at the pdf only being six seven eight pages relatively short uh we were shocked by how dense um and and how 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 slow going it was through that he he really does pack a punch throughout this yeah i i reread it i started rereading it this morning and i just didn't finish i mean i i read it i read it a little bit last week and then I, I was like okay let me just read through it quickly and then i got sort of bogged down in the first four or five paragraphs and 
and uh, you know, and I skimmed the rest. But yeah, it it's not easy to move quickly through. That's true of all of his writings, but this one, you know, you just want to dwell on an idea, chase down his references, things like that. And I, I feel like could probably spend the whole podcast just dwelling on the uh, first sentence. Uh, he starts out with what philosophy is seems to be inseparable from the question of how to read Plato, which is um, quite quite the claim. What what about reading Plato and the approach to reading Plato is so important, fundamental in, in trying to conceive of what philosophy is and trying and, and having a philosophic mindset. Yeah. I think that, that, so that first line is, is it grabs your attention because you want to see what does that mean? And he doesn't really explain it uh, too well. Right. It's, it's sort of uh, very opaque. Um, he has a number of essays that start with provocative statements like this. Another one begins with uh, virtually everybody knows that Aristotle sometimes lies. That's another <laughs> greatest hit of uh, first line. You know, uh, honestly, Mel- Melville, I know Call Me Ishmael is good, but, you know, uh, it doesn't have a candle to this guy. But yeah, I think uh, so you could say in reading any text, you make assumptions when you start thinking about what it's trying to do. Um, you'll often pick up a book with a specific question in mind, expecting that that book will address it. Um, Sometimes it has to do with the book's reputation, its title, um, the design on its cover. You know, we all have to judge a book by its cover or by its first sentence or what have you. And so anytime you you go into reading something, you have a, an assumption about wh- uh, what it is about. Um, a book about justice, you're going to expect to hear something uh, about the courts, about laws, things like that, right? Um, you're not necessarily expecting you're going to hear about how uh, – you know, old women and young men need to exercise nude together, like Plato does, right? So, so great books, truly great books, surprise you, right? They they give you something that you weren't expecting to find, and I think this uh, tendency is especially pronounced when it comes to Plato, um, specifically because Plato is so absent. He gives you the title. He doesn't tell you how he heard this, if he heard it, if he made it up, right? All those questions about when he wrote it, he doesn't give you any of that information, which is why there's such enduring questions. And you have to kind of figure that out. And since it is a work of philosophy, um, and it is, you know, the foundational, you know, set of texts in the history of philosophy, more so than anything else, um, going into it, you really are making assumptions about what philosophy is. And in a way, as you read, you have to constantly revise that understanding. Um, I think that's why he ends this paragraph uh, with the statement. Another one of these great lines of his. The false start of philosophy can alone jumpstart philosophy. Right? It's only by, by laying a claim and then seeing how it was mistaken, how it was a false start, that you're actually on the way. Um, and this is connected to his appreciation of Strauss as always beginning to begin, right? Able to begin as a beginner, really to start fresh each time. It's much more difficult. It's very difficult to go into something, seeing it for what it is, right? In all its actual nuance. And that, so the, that kind of ties into something which was at least in the back of my head when I was reading this, which was, and um, does Benardetti have a, uh, polemical target in this uh, piece 
because the, the and he mentions uh, Strauss's letter to Gadamer, um, where he says, you, uh, you know, your theory of interpretation doesn't correspond with my own experience. Um, but the, the way he seems to describe how uh, Strauss does philosophy is seems to be in pretty direct contrast to that school of hermeneutics. Yeah, I think he, I think that that corresponds with Gadamer, which I, I recommend you read. It's it's really excellent. I've gotten a lot out of it. I think what he's taking issue with there is the attempt to give a kind of uh, theory or method of interpretation, in a way, a kind of Cartesian method, right? Uh, that's indifferent to the user. So you walk into a lab, you put on a lab coat, everybody's got their white coat. That's how you recognize a scientist and you control for variables so that you're not influencing it. And the hope, I think, in in interpretation uh, for Gadamer on some level, according to Strauss, um, is that you can come up with that kind of abstract account so that you don't have to deal with all the idiosyncrasies of picking up a book. And we all have that experience where you're discussing a book with someone and you're like, you got that out of that? Right, you got the, that's what you thought this book was about, and and that's in a way what makes it fruitful and interesting. But if you come up with a method um, that's indifferent to the interpreter, it's not even clear it's interpretation anymore. Right, that there's an activity and a person uh, behind it. And for Strauss, when he emphasizes the occasional or the particularity of the moment when you see something for the first time, where something clicks, and you don't necessarily know why it clicks. What he's trying to do is to resituate the human being or the interpreter in that activity. Um, that's to say that you always have to be attentive to where you begin, because that's going to be, you know, inevitably influenced by your particular inclinations, your background, your upbringing, you know, your passions, how you feel that day, right? Um, that's always going to influence it. And so I think that I, I wouldn't call it a polemical target of of Benedetti's uh, per se, but I would say that you know. Uh, he sees Gadamer as an interesting foil in this regard. Um, you know, Strauss and Plato, they're not systematic thinkers, yet they are trying to get at truth. And so somehow their truth has to make sense of that idiosyncratic starting point. It has to make some room for the individual to begin thinking. Otherwise, it's just an abstract account that, that can't account for the most, you know, most, you know, obvious feature of human life, which is that. It's contingency. It seems in this essay uh, also, Benedetti has an even shorter list of who qualifies as a philosopher than um, you, you've discussed on Twitter, saying that uh, no one, almost no one uh, after Plato wrote a length at length about philosophy and, and sort of what philosophy at, it, at its heart is later on in the same paragraph. Well, yeah, that's what Benedetti claims, yeah. He discusses how he um, discusses how Al-Farabi and Strauss performed this great recovery or great rediscovery of what philosophy is. So what's the uniting element between Strauss and and Farabi? I, what, what is it that's, that the two of them are doing in order to rediscover? philosophy as such. Well, I, I don't know Farabi well, so this is uh, outside my element. I can only speak to what Benedetti says here, which is that um, in both of their times, uh, 
philosophy and uh, revelation were mixed, right? And so they had to recover both at the same time is what he says. Um, sometimes in Strauss, you see uh, a phrase, something like the idea of revelation. It's an interesting provocative phrase because it's using a platonic term about something that's supposed to be you know, extra platonic, right? It's a philosophic term applied to revelation. I don't know what more to say about that. I do think that when, when I read this essay, which is you know, Benedetti on Strauss on Plato, the thing that's obviously missing, that's you know, hinted to here and there, is revelation. Right? It comes up at the beginning, and then almost at the end, when he quotes Strauss at length, when he, when he talks about uh, um, um, philosophy being graced by nature's grace, the notion of grace comes in at the end, and I don't know what to do with that sort of missing piece to this uh, essay, but uh, it certainly seems to be important. But yeah, I think that yeah, the, just on the simple point of Farabi and Strauss, he's you know Benedetti makes the claim that they both had to recover it in their its abstract form, um, precisely because they were mixed up. And this you could say this problem gets even worse in modernity, right? I'm wondering if we can. Um pivot to Benardetti's account of esotericism. Um, and specifically, he talks about uh, metaphysical and... Oh, sorry, where is this? Um, political, um, which he, uh, he distinguishes between uh, ancient and modern and political and metaphysical and um, uses this metaphor of a bee and a spider where metaphysical esotericism is the bee which makes something sweet out of something sweet um you know honey out of a flower and a spider which makes something beautiful out of something you know ugly itself the web um and i don't think i really teased out all the implications of this metaphor i was i was you know wondering you know, uh, you know, to, to uh, you know, to what that refers, um, how to conceptualize that, and 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 you know, Benedetti. Sorry, I'll wrap this up real quick. Benedetti refers to Strauss kind of doing po political philosophy, which is which is the second, which is, you know, uh, I don't know if uh, ascending, but ending up with a some kind of beautiful product out of something which is ugly so i think uh so he's referring to jonathan swift there to uh his uh book the battle of the books uh, which is a funny wonderful little uh short story uh but prior to the books actually battling and it's a battle between ancient ancients and moderns there was this ongoing debate in his time he refers to it at the outset and then he imagines in this library uh, you know, the two groups going after one another because uh, some dim-witted librarian has accidentally mixed them up, whereas judiciously, uh, once you keep them separate. But prior to the battle breaking out, there's an encounter between a spider and a bee. And the spider has a web, and the bee comes in through the window of the library and gets caught in the spider's web. So the first thing to note, I think, uh, in that example is that the web is indoors. The bee is outdoors. Right? The web is inside of a building of human making, while the bee is in nature. Now, the web 
we find out the B chastises, and this comes, it's almost verbatim from what uh, Swift says. The B chastises the spider and says, look at all these carcasses. You make out of these carcasses a, a web. And, you know, it's pretty, but it's, it's made out of foul. It's made from death, right? Essentially from materialism or a kind of nihilism, you get this pretty attractive outside. Whereas the bee is out in nature. I think this is a subtle, because he talks later about uh, Strauss's idea of a cave beneath a cave. I think this is a subtle reference to the cave beneath the cave. Um, the bee goes in between nature and making, right? Say uh, nature and and um, convention, even right. What's of human beings' own devising, and he understands the relationship when he's in one and the other. The spider, however, makes something for himself in within the context of making and is oblivious uh, to that. Um, and the spider is quite angry and and quite so. The, the bee is somehow sustained by nature, while the spider um, has falsely put himself in the situation where he is confined by human making. And this is a, a sort of allusion to these two forms of writing. Now, what are the two forms of writing? Well, for the moderns, right, they conceal materialism beneath like, you know, a project of human mastery that's captivating and has all this dreamy sort of stuff. And he says, there's a truth behind this that they're hiding, or they deem this thing a true, that they're hiding this sort of, uh, um, the fact that we have no no purpose in the world, right? That there's no teleology. And that's a kind of political esotericism because you're simply not saying things for political reasons. I think one thing I'd say is that the for the moderns or this sort of archetype of the modern, uh, because moderns are more subtle, I think, than this lets on. But for the moderns, you could say the truth, perhaps in knowing company. For the ancients, it's different. Um, it seems to be that there's a metaphysical esotericism that he says entails a political esotericism. The things themselves do not lend themselves to uh, political utterance, or perhaps not even direct statement. You could say this is tied to the question of how Plato writes, right? Plato doesn't say anything directly. He says things indirectly. If this is more than just a convenient style or a kind of window dressing, if it is really quite deep, this, this manner of writing that Plato uses, it must be grounded in the nature of things, in being as such. That, Benedetti argues, and I think this is true, entails political esotericism, that you can't say what you think. You have to be judicious. Precisely, I think, because politics relies on a certain stability in decisions, right, uh, on having answers on having opinions that are taken to be true, opinions that would be submitted to dialectical critique um, in the case of when it comes to philosophy. So so on the one side, you have political esotericism, which is, I'm just not going to tell you that nothing matters, that it's all meaningless. And the other side, you have a kind of political esotericism. I'm not going to tell you what I think, um, but that's rooted in a sense that what's fundamental are the questions, not some hidden answer. Was that a satisfied grunt? I heard a grunt. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly a lot more satisfying than the uh, Strauss quote Benardetti gives in that paragraph, that the problem inherent in the surface of things and only in the surface of things is the heart of things. That's... A, um, you know, I wonder, some, whenever I say that line, I think there's a line by Nietzsche, it's from his notebooks, where it says, the Greeks were, were deep, or they were profound, the words the same in German, Tifa. They were, they were. Oh, I'm sorry, they were superficial out of profundity, out of depth. 
um, that somehow they knew to stick to the surface. This is related, I think, to this this point about beginning again, right? Um, one way to think about this is that whenever you read a book or you start thinking about the world, you're already deep, right? You're already coming into it with a theory, an opinion, with conventions, the stuff that you've been taught or that you've come up with on your own and that you're expecting. You believe these things to be true. And a great book is going to defy those expectations. Well, you're going to have to start again and you're going to have to realize, oh, I wasn't seeing things on the surface. I had failed to notice this, that, and the other. And somehow, if you can see the surface as a surface, right, see appearance for what it is without imposing on it, without rushing to judgment, that would somehow be uh, be to see things as they are, right? Um, not to to impose on it some predetermined theory or, or system or, or just something as simple as an opinion. So you had previously mentioned Benedetti starts a discussion a little later of what Strauss calls the cave beneath the cave uh, Benedetti writes Strauss had to recover the cave in all its shadowiness before he could show the way out of the cave and that this entailed the establishment of the fundamental character of the political and its double aspect the nature of political things and the best form of the city and so The cave beneath the cave seems to be something newly emergent, perhaps something emerging alongside modern thought and philosophy among the moderns. Benedetti doesn't really discuss this, but what what do you think are are the causes for its emergence, or why why is there this extra problem we have to to deal with? Uh, that the ancients didn't in their already difficult search for knowledge or wisdom or justice or good. Yeah, this is an interesting uh, paragraph. So the essay is 17 paragraphs, and this is the eighth. It's the middle. Uh, uh, oh, wait, I'm sorry. No, that's not the middle paragraph. The next one is the uh, uh, middle paragraph on subjective uh, certainty. This is a, a kind of restarting moment uh, where he goes to what Strauss wrote, his interpretations of, uh, of Plato. And he points out that he writes on the Euthyphro Apology, Credo, Euthydemus, Republican Statesman, Minos, and Laws. And he points out that this is heavily uh, weighed in favor of the political, pointing out that most contemporary scholars incline to something like the Phaedo, Theotetus, Sophist, Parmenides, Timaeus. We have a bias in favor of epistemology, and cosmology and ontology, the study of knowledge, the study of being, the study of nature, physical uh, nature. Strauss's uh, um, choices does seem like a real uh, counterweight to the prevailing tense, trends. It looks, he says, this looks like an unavoidable bias of his profession, right? That this is, he just had to, right? He was a political scientist, but it seems like he was able to see something a bit more. Uh, directly. Um, and specifically, um, it was the tendency to separate the question of being from the question of the city. This is tied to an earlier statement uh, Benedetti makes about how Strauss is very, very quiet on the forms, on the platonic theory of the forms. Um, but he says, and that looks like a kind of caution. I'm not going to talk about the biggest things. But then you notice, no, 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 it's actually quite daring at the same time, because he talks about 
man, God, and beast, the beings on the one hand, and then the whole, right, being as such. And you could say that he's actually gone above the forms, above ontology, to notice a more fundamental relationship, which has something to do with the relationship between man and the subhuman, the superhuman, in the context of the whole. And you could say this is related to his turn to political uh, philosophy. And that, so the cave is the sense that you can separate. You, you know, this would be one, one way to understand the cave beneath the cave. The cave is a sense that you can separate the question of science or the question of knowledge, um, knowledge of nature, or knowledge of being, from the question of the best regime. Um, whereas the question of knowledge, I think Strauss and Benedetti, and I would also claim this, is uh, inseparable from the question of the just or the human good, um, and that you can't understand one. Uh, without the other. We see this, for example, in, in Descartes, right? Descartes says, um, look, I want to establish something firm and lasting in the sciences. This is meditation one. He says, so I'm just going to uh, doubt all my opinions. Now, I'm not going to go one by one. That's going to take too long. I am not going to be Socrates. I'm just going to doubt that through which or from which they come, the senses. And, and since the senses sometimes deceive us, all right, we're done. So, and then the idea is I'll use mathematics to get past that. Well, he's already determined the purpose of knowledge, right? Something firm and lasting, something efficacious, something I can really rely on. Rather than rooting out your opinions one by one as they occur to you or as they, as they present themselves to you as questionable or as important. Um, I think in those moments like that, when you see that in the moderns, uh, early moderns, you're seeing the establishment of a cave beneath the cave, a determination of what knowledge ought to be and what its purpose ought to be, its place in human life, without that question being submitted to any scrutiny. Um, it's only pointed to as a question in, in some of these thinkers. Instead, they, they want to move on to, to the all-important thing. When you do that, you're no longer confronting your ordinary political opinions. Those are taken for granted. And instead, you've embarked on a kind of uh, political philosophic project um, that's, uh, that's going to pursue knowledge of a certain kind. I'm not sure if that utterly clarifies it. On the cave beneath uh, the cave, uh, one of my teachers, uh, Lawrence Birds, I was just editing some of his essays, he refers to it as the air-conditioned pit, which I think is helpful. <laughs> The cave isn't so bad if you've got AC and some good lighting and some music and delicious food. You know, you don't, yeah, you want to leave the cave? What are you thinking? But if you're in chains and shackles, if you see that, then it's not so great after all. Is there some sense where, I mean, maybe it's not what this refers to specifically, but um, where, where things have devolved even further from Descartes? Um, you, know, you know, Descartes. Thinks even by doubting all of his sentence, senses, he can establish some kind of secure knowledge um, a, a among some things. Um, but has the epistemological position kind of devolved to the point of nihilism, basically? Um, and is is that also partly what we're trying to address here, or is it just this uh, sundering of being into different parts? each each of the subject of its own discipline yeah i mean it does look like uh the crisis of the west as, as strauss puts it and so many other thinkers put it um is part of what motivates returning to the roots of modernity um especially the rise of fascism right um and you see what was going on in germany at the time and this idea that that 
you know, they're going to found an empire as sort of uh, as a devotion to the German uh, people. Um, you have to say, well, where's the, you know, and this, this is divorced from any uh, conception of morality. The return to the ancients is absolutely seems, seems necessary. It seems at some point you have to go back and say, where did we go wrong? Did we go wrong, first of all? It's an open question, right? Did we go wrong, or is this the necessary culmination of the life of reason or of rationalism as such, which is something like what Heidegger offers, um, and a lot of postmodern thought offers, or is this a peculiar variety of rationalism, modern rationalism, which is more what Strauss argued? Um, when Strauss returns to political philosophy, um, what he's what he's trying to do is to show that when you start thinking about uh, certain categories like the noble, certain questions might arise. There might even be certain confusions. Um, but there's some substance there to be thought through. Um, it's not mere nihilism. Um, there are certain uh, aspects of morality that have a certain tr- structure. They might be not be wholly rational, um, but these are these are distinct passions to human beings that that need some sort of expression. Um, and, and and somehow the crisis of the West is is you know provokes this. Uh, in Strauss. So the, the the next part you alluded to is the um, you know the the middle paragraph and of the knot sequence, um, which in the very next paragraph, Benedetti points out is often the most important, um, <laughs> uh, uh, which is um, Strauss and his subjective uh, certainty. Uh, and Benedetti calls that the experimental nature of his way of interpretation. Um, and I, so t- just to, to summarize that quickly and then to raise a problem w- with it. So he would, um, it says, once he could hypothesize about the drift of his entire dialogue or a sufficiently complex argument, he would deduce from it the consequences that should hold in the text if the hypothesis were sound. The consequences could range from a word to an entire argument that should be present or absent from the dialogue. Strauss was just able to deduce, for example, that soul doesn't appear in the euthyphro. Uh, one question I have is, um, do, you as- do you assume the correctness of your hypothesis and then reinterpret the text on the basis of that? Or do you toss out the or what you assumed was the correctness of your original hypothesis in favor of the evidence of the text? So if you expect, for example, to see soul in the euthyphro, and you don't because because you know maybe by a third of it you think you grasp the argument, uh, does that mean that you interpret the rest of it in light of the soul not being in there? Or that you reinterpret or you know reformulate your hypothesis through a third of it based on the fact that the soul isn't in there. Yeah, so I think yeah, I think what he's saying here is is right. So when to go back to that initial point when you pick up a book, right, you're making assumptions about it. But, um, it seems like what, what you want to do when you're when you're reading Plato is you say, okay, this seems to be about X, Y, and Z, but it's it's approaching it through this peculiar angle. So, what exactly is is uh, um, 
you know, the, the logical consequence of this. So you form an hypothesis. So uh, I'll take the, the symposium, right? Symposium is about eros, right? It's about love. And that's nice. Oh, it's, you know, sort of like, you know, any, any book about love, you know, you're going to hear about lovers and beloved and pursued and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's a weird way that's framed. It's right after this uh, tragedy in Agathon has won a contest and celebrated something in his honor. And he's been uh, wreathed and, and they've celebrated and got drunk and they're hung over the next day, but they're still celebrating again, but taking a little easier this time. And you realize there's something odd because Eros here now is presented in, a, in the context of a love of glory or a love of fame. Um, fast forward uh, to Socrates' speech, and the highest form of Eros is philosophy. And that'll get you Agathon, because he's addressing it to Agathon. Agathon, don't you worry. You really want to be famous? You just won last night. You want to win for life? Go to philosophy, because then you'll give birth to true images of virtue, and that'll get you the closest thing to immortality that a human being can have. And you say, well, that's odd to make philosophy. First of all, it doesn't make sense on its face because you're supposed to move from the particular to the universal. Um, and the particular has to do with your skewed viewpoint. So there's no such thing as a true image according to this account. Yet that's what's you know held out at the end. But two, you realize, okay, this is a highly distorting lens. And you can go back over and you and you think about it and say, what, what, is, uh, what is it that accounts for this love of self? or this love of one's own glory. And you say, well, traditionally in Plato's psychology, that's thumos, right? That's, that's this spirited desire, this defensiveness of yourself, right? Um, and lo and behold, this never mentioned in the symposium. So some, if you can notice at the beginning, and I didn't notice that at the beginning, this is not me working through something I figured out by any means, but if you notice at the beginning how there's this distorting lens on the subject, you might notice, oh, the real thing at issue that nobody will face precisely because it's taken for granted is this passion. That's, and that's what Strauss calls uh, abstraction. This is related to what he says in the, the essay about uh, the relationship between sequence and pattern, um, right? You know, the dialogue unfolds temporally. And that temporal unfolding is supposed to be a kind of moving from part to part of a subject matter. Um, that mo motion is supposed to show you the relationship between the various parts of that subject matter. If you can see that early enough and, and guess what it is, you might guess what it's really actually about. Um, I've never been able to do this in my life. It's, <laughs> it's, it sounds impossibly difficult. And that's, uh, I mean, that's what seems to make Strauss so impressive uh, to Bender Doty. And Bender Doty's, I throughout i think quite impressive in his own right in this the the final uh sentence of that that central paragraph uh is is talking about how some of strauss's observations uh might seem spurious and, and he another one of those just phenomenal short sentences this appearance of specious serendipity is a necessity um and i guess that goes back to trying to to start a, a new and trying to understand why things don't don't quite seem to make sense in what you're working through or yeah i think you know i, I often think about heidegger when he in being in time he talks about questioning that there's kind of where you start questioning where you want to get with questioning and where you end up and and you have to constantly have a sort of adjustment um and when you notice that the risk is that when strauss interprets something that it seems like 
uh, he's just loaded things so that so that it's just justifying his own thesis and he's ignoring other things right he'll just you, we have this experience sometimes you read it and it's just you'll just be like let this alone suffice or something like that and he'll just give you one thing and you're supposed to rely on that well in a way that's the nature of of, of having an insight right something occurs to you it, it comes to you you don't have control over it um and that's a kind of specious serendipity an appearance of specious serendipity like oh look what just it just happened to fall on your lap right oh come on you're just loading things but he says and this is what's amazing is that that appearance is necessary it's intrinsic to philosophy as such um, if you get rid of that you're just going to be doing godimer's thing right where it's just applying a tool anybody can use it provided they just want to um you have to again if you're if you're going to bridge uh um you know the individual and some truth it's going to have this serendipitous uh, moment to it um, you have to somehow create the conditions in your own thinking as a person for seeing something and that has to do with you and it's not something you can merely reproduce you can just kind of show people what you thought and perhaps it doesn't pull perhaps it looks specious but that's how it happens and I know you don't intend for it to, but can you explain how that would not uh, just collapse into pure subjectivity? Um, that just cause, just out of you know out of interest. No, no, absolutely, and I think that's that's the difficulty. I mean, he's saying that appearance is unavoidable, um, and we often have you know I, I'll read essays or I'll talk to people, and they have something very idiosyncratic about it. Sometimes I have something very idiosyncratic about a text, and it doesn't necessarily persuade someone. Um, and it might be that that's the case. Um, but the issue is, is whether you can move from the particulars to the general in a way that accounts for the particulars. Um, he talks about uh, this early on. I think it's in like paragraph three uh, or paragraph two. Um, he says, Strauss was the master of the connection between the small and the large, or of the ways in which the one participates in, uh, and hence fails to be identical with the other. Strauss's mastery was such that its inherent difficulty does not strike home until one tries it oneself and comes up with quite arbitrary links that do not, in fact, encompass all the particulars, and hence fall short of the truly general. We all have this experience. You might read Strauss on, on a dialogue and you say, wow, this is amazing. I'm going to go read some Plato. And then you try to figure it out and you're just numb. You know, or you, you come up with something and then you read something a little later, like, oh, that's not right. You know, he, you know the, the proof is in the pudding in a way that, that he could. It's hard to find objections, truly consequential objections to his interpretations. And is this... Um, Exchange with the reader what he means, uh, or what Benardetti means when he says fails to be identical with, because he you know he's referring to the to the hermeneutic circle there. Right? The um, can't make sense out of this sentence without having a sense of the whole work, but you can't have a sense of the whole work without having a sense of the individual sentence. But he all he also talks about this sense in which the particular stands outside of the whole as well. And I was having a hard time 
understanding understanding that where it doesn't just make sense through participation say the whole of the dialogue there's some way to make sense of it outside of that also and is that the kind of personal exchange that the reader has with it yeah so he says the this principle is the hermeneutic equivalent um this is the stuff of is that what you're looking at in paragraph 11 yes to the difference between uh, a being as a part of the whole and a being apart from it's being a part of the whole right all right that's very opaque right what does this mean this is something Benard daddy talks about a bit in his book on the trilogy um so if you're gonna you want to understand the whole great right okay well frankly all i can see right now is my office and it's just a part of the whole a very small part not even a particularly interesting or attractive part, but it's a part. So to begin thinking about the whole, I have to start from the parts. I might start thinking about justice. I might think about uh, the question of uh, uh, physical nature, what a thing is, what are, you know, any philosophic question, you carve it off and you treat it as a whole. This is what Aristotle does, right? And what makes him so different from Plato. He starts very general and then he says, okay, you know, this is, you know, we're talking about this and it's related to this subject. We talked about this in the physics, but now we're going to look at this and, you know, here's some old views, but this is what it's really about. And then he's in the material, like whatever it is, you know, the subject he wants to talk about, he's in it. Benedetti sees this move as necessary relying on uh, the invocation of the beautiful or the noble, right? To Cologne and Greek. The idea being that I've made something complete. I'm pretending something that I know is incomplete, precisely because I have to start with the part. I'm pretending that it's a, a complete and distinct uh, subject matter. You know, so I might study biology, for example. Eventually, I'm going to have to start thinking about chemistry. And if I think enough about chemistry, eventually I might have to think about physics. And I think about physics. I'm eventually going to have to start thinking maybe about psychology, right? There's going to be all these sorts of issues that you run in precisely because they are not distinct holes. When that emerges, when that thing happens, that's when you start to see um, the whole emerge, right? When you start realizing that the precondition for understanding biology, the sort of fiction of it being a unified thing, um, that precondition does not obtain or does not obtain at all circumstances it's a it's a useful heuristic um and so plato does something similar he says when he separates out a subject matter um this is what makes i think you know for instance the republic so amazing is you're talking about justice and you have book one and you're kind of left confused and then you end up running the gamut of of you know uh uh, criticism of poetry, theology, uh, mathematics, uh, ontology, you know, uh, uh, psychology, you know, go on and on and on. And, and you, you end up dragging a whole bunch of other things and leaving a lot unsaid as well. Um, that, uh, that move is related to this hermeneutic circle where I had to form a hypothesis based on part of it. And then the book surprises me or I realize something, uh, it doesn't quite, uh, obtain. And this is, this is the manner in which this this thing he's talking about at the beginning, right? That you have to start from where you start from. Um, that's that's the way in which that can get you to something like an understanding of things themselves, right? If if you're always going to start by falsely cutting things up based on your predisposition, um, you have to wait for the world to surprise you. 
you have to wait for that opinion or that understanding of things or that operating assumption or whatever it is, that heuristic to break down. And that's somehow where you have this, what he calls that turning around, right? From for the Republic of the Periagoge. Uh, when you have that moment, that's when you start to see things as they are. And that's, I think, the genius of this is that uh, Plato has managed in his style of writing to reproduce the very experience of thinking, right? Of this kind of discovery. Um, he's been able to incorporate the particular within this generic writing that's going to be the same for anybody who picks it up and manage to find a way to appeal to his readers. This is incidentally the piece that I wrote for you guys that thwart on uh, the chosen reader is that that very subject matter is, is is driven by my own sort of thinking on this this question is how does Plato appeal to the particular um, and how does he maximize that through his style of writing? Uh, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing, but he manages to do it. And is part of that movement from from the particular to the whole aided by or is it essential to uh, Strauss is fond of having some clear dichotomies or tensions between various things throughout this essay we're seeing all sorts of um, different things putting conflict with one another the ancients and moderns philosophy theology the uh, bee and the spider and then uh, in the, this next paragraph we've got and I, this is, I think, one of the best descriptions I've seen of, of some of the discomfort of the Republic is that there's this comparison of the city to the body, but the comparison is actually the city to the soul. And there's this tension between what's good for the body and the soul isn't quite right, or or you're speaking about different things that don't don't quite work. And so, do the these tensions are are they a necessary way of is setting up dichotomies like this useful or, or essential to to going from particular to the whole i guess is what i'm trying to get asked yeah i mean you could uh, i mean so I love these paragraphs, 11 and 12, where he, he talks about, he says, Plato's procedure is based on the idealism of opinion or the vulgar Platonism of opinion. Well, now we know what Strauss thinks about the ideas, right? They're, they're based in common opinion. The next paragraph, the city then is the locus of idealism. I heard from a, a um, former teacher of mine at St. John's that uh, Benedetti gave a talk on the Republic and uh, after you give a talk, you sit around for a question and answer period. They call it a question period because they're dogmatically, you're not allowed to have answers there at St. James. <laughs> um, um, God forbid you actually think something. But uh, they uh, have this uh, question period. And um, it went on late, late. And apparently he had to leave to go to the airport. That's the story, at least. You know, Who knows how much of his mythography. And he ends by saying... Uh, Everybody in the Republic believes in the ideas except Socrates. That's the uh, apparently what he said. It's his last word, which apparently ends a talk the way that he ends a, a paragraph or an essay. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it's a wonderful uh, statement. But that, that your point about opposites, right? Drawing these distinctions and watching them collapse, that's the same thing as I was talking about with parts, right? You want to make a clear distinction between one thing and, and the other, right? You want to say... Um, you know, uh, 
to take the Lockies, for example, uh, courage is a kind of a brute force, right? Well, then that just seems like you, you would call a lion courageous or a dog courageous. That doesn't seem right. Courage seems somehow different in human beings. We say, well, what makes human beings different is we can know things. Okay, so courage is a science. Well, then if it's a science that takes all the risk out of it, so that can't be right either. And so by creating this, this vulgar distinction between, you could say, desire and knowledge, um, you create the conditions for, for seeing this, this in-between. Benedetti uses the phrase indeterminate dyad. A lot, a lot, <clears throat> and uh, and what he's talking about is that is that you make a distinction and then you make a dyad, right? Or or you divide things in two, and then you notice some indeterminacy—the fact that they're not as separate in in reality as they are in speech, right? That your distinction is is exaggerated uh, thing. Um, you know, the example of eros as as poverty and plenty, for example. Um, that's another example of where you made a distinction. It turns out it has both uh, within them. Um, and you know, so on and so forth. You see that they, you can't utterly separate these things uh, completely, but you have to. That's the false start, right? You have to say, well, I think courage is knowledge, and then somebody shows you that it's not. They refute you, and people often get angry with Socrates. Oh, this is you know, you're just being annoying, or I'm going to get you, or where they throw up their hands and say, well, I guess I'm done. That's the Atidas, right? But in reality, what his refutation is not meant to be the 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 end of you believing or something. Well, it was meant to be the end of you believing, not to be the end of your thinking, like you're robbed of something. It's meant to give you the thing that you need, right? The, the thing that's missing. And both horns of the dyad are retained in the new idea. Since I, I don't yeah, want to use I don't, like I don't Hegelian know language. Get, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's what I was trying to about to say, too. But yeah, no, it's more like, like you still, you know, it's, it's, uh, you want things to be two, you want them to be one. They're, they're kind of two-ish, you know. They're they're kind of in the middle uh, mm-hmm. somewhere, um, you know. And and it's approached through your opinions, right? So who even knows if your starting point gets you to the heart of things? But somehow, whenever this happens, is when you're actually onto something. I think it better Diddy's not quite. So can you help me with another dyad here? Then the. Benedetti is pointing out these examples in the Republic and what Strauss is drawing from them. But he starts out by saying that the guide for both Strauss and Al-Farabi, and later he says for Cicero, isn't the Republic in all this, it's the laws. And yet Benedetti doesn't really go and to any sort of discussion of the laws, aside from these two mentions of that this was what was really important for for guiding them, um, not the Republic. So what what are we to make of that that diet that tension of the Republic versus the laws in this? Yeah. So uh, one thing I would look at is um, a lot of the stuff is coming from what is political philosophy, and specifically from uh, the chapter how Farabi read uh, Plato's uh, laws. I'm just going to read a passage from Strauss. Uh, For those who are uh, interested, I believe this is on uh, page, I want to say uh, 126, maybe. Um, Anyways, it's in in that chapter. He says, uh, Strauss says the following, 
The way of Plato emerges through a correction of the way of Socrates. The way of Socrates is intransigent. It demands of the philosopher an open break with the accepted opinions. The way of Plato combines the way of Socrates, which is appropriate for the philosopher's relation to the elite, with the way of Thrasymachus, which is appropriate for the philosopher's relations to the vulgar. The way of Plato demands, therefore, judicious conformity with the accepted opinions. I'll just insert here, this could be considered his idealism, right? Um, to continue, if we consider the connection stated in a summary between the vulgar and laws, we arrive at the conclusion that the appreciation of uh, legit or legitimation of laws becomes possible by virtue of Plato's correction of the way of Socrates. It is as if Farabi had intended the absence of Socrates from the laws to mean that Socrates has nothing to do with laws, and as if he had tried to express this interpretation by suggesting that if, per impossibile, the laws were Socratic, they would not deal with laws. Um, that's, that's saying a lot, right? But I think what he's trying to say is that there's something fundamentally in tension between Socratic philosophy and law. Um, that, and I think that has to do with the general uh, um, skepticism about the idealism of opinion, right? We take law to mean something like official opinions, you know, passed judiciously by whatever. Um, and, you know, it's deliberation and all that. Uh, you know, then you would have to say, okay, well, if Socratic philosophy is skeptical of opinions, is skeptical about laws, therefore he must be silent. You know, another, the two other places where Socrates is silent or absent, right? Silent is in the Sophists and Statesmen, which are two very scientifically minded dialogues. And then the Timaeus, which is cosmology, that gives you a sense of the range of things that are incompatible with Socrates, or that about which Socrates does not uh, discourse or, or attempt to arrive at a, a sort of, um, or, or use as a tool. He's not specifically going to divide up the sciences per se, though he will ask what science is. He's not going to engage in a kind of physical theory the way Timaeus does, but he will in the Phaedo tell you about how he grew skeptical about cosmology and likewise about law. He's not going to legislate, but he will ask an anonymous comrade you know, in Athens, what is law? Um, these are the sorts of uh, things that reflect on, on this. And, and obviously, the laws is the big one here because he's not even present there. He doesn't listen. Right, it's a sort of Athenian stranger, maybe Socrates, who knows? But it's 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 the most uh, unsocratic, anti-Socratic, or extra-Socratic, whatever you want to call it, dialogue that there is. Um, and somehow that's the key to understanding what makes Plato different. Are these dialogues, and maybe specifically uh, the laws? This is the first recording where I've had notes to uh, to jot down and think about after. Yeah, you should let the listeners know. Maybe you'll get some good recordings of pen writing that that you're not bored or or or, or right or, um, or I'm opaque. Um, can I add one more thing? Because I, I know we're getting a little further along. I just want to add something on this question about uh, just the first line. What philosophy is seems to be inseparable from the question of how to read Plato. Um, I think the. Uh, one way in which this is answered um, is in uh, paragraph two, because we want to know, well, what is philosophy, right? At the end of paragraph two, uh, Benedetti says the following. He says, his reading of Plato was not different from his own thinking, not in the sense that his opinions were Plato's or Plato's his, but in the element of Platonic dialectic, Strauss saw 
and practiced his own way. I think what you what you get there is a sense that, well, if the problem of philosophy is you have to incorporate within the theory the particular starting point, so the general has to make sense of the particular, philosophy has to be dialectics, right? Which is a kind of dialogue, conversation in the most rudimentary sense, right? Where you're just conversing with another about what you think about X, Y, or Z. Somehow only if philosophy is this activity, this dialectical activity, front, back, and center, right? You don't ever transcend it or, and leave it behind the way you might with like a methodical uh, understanding or systematic understanding of philosophy. If philosophy is dialectic, then it turns out Plato had, and he can make this somehow thematic in his writing, that it is the core of his writing through and through then somehow Plato will have um, made everything after him footnotes, right? That he will have somehow <laughs> tapped into the essential character of philosophy. And, and I'll, I'll point this out just really briefly because I think this is um, important. Benardetti is constantly confusing what Strauss says with what he says. It's a very coy element. To explain something in the memorabilia, he brings in something from his writings on Heraclitus. To explain something on... Um, uh, about the Republic, I think he brings in his interpretation of the Fido. Um, he's constantly bringing in his own way of things, precisely because he wants to acknowledge his own starting point, because that's the only way he can actually have a conversation with Strauss, with the Strauss he knew and the Strauss he reads. Um, and that's, a, a, I think, an underappreciated, uh, very subtle um, and playful side to this essay. And that, that sort of just leaves us at, at conversations the the necessary means for playing this out right uh, trying to understand our experience in the in relation to one another and trying to find our own starting points over and over again and, and see where they diverge from others which hopefully efforts like this uh, podcasts all all sorts of things are, are a step in, in that direction. And, and so I, I don't want us to go without giving you the opportunity to shout out your new project. You're working on a podcast of your own. Would you like to tell all of our listeners what, what that is and what they can expect? Yeah, so the podcast is called The New Thinkery. You can follow us on Twitter at The New Thinkery. We have a website, thenewthinkery.com. You can email us, newthinkery at... Uh, gmail.com. But basically, it's a podcast on the history of political philosophies with two of my uh, oldest uh, friends. Um, one of them is literally my oldest friends, Greg McGrayer. He's very old. Um, the other one I've just known for a really long time. It's my friend David Barr. Uh, they're just people I get along talking with. We text every day. We have all sorts of conversations whenever we have a chance, which is rare nowadays, to get together. Uh, it's always you know great conversations that uh, have that that sort of familiarity of friends, but we can talk about very serious things in a way that's, I think, uh, civil and sympathetic and, and, and fun as well. Um, and so the idea was to create a more relaxed, kind of lighter uh, conversation, but drawing on, you know, what we've read, what we think, what we're teaching, uh, what's going on in the world, and, and uh, you know, bring our rapport uh, to people who might find it interesting, you know. Um, so the new thinkery, the title is obviously a play on uh, the thinkery from Aristophanes' Clouds. Um, the only difference, I guess, is that it's new. We're just as ridiculous as the old thinkery, I guess, <laughs> in a way. Uh, um, and uh, 
and and we're trying not to be as vulgar as the old thinkery um, <laughs> um because uh um yeah, we have jobs we need to worry about. <laughs> but yeah, that's the, that's the idea. You know, we're going to record one actually later tonight on Al Ghazali and Averroes, um, which is going to be right. great. I'm really looking forward to that. I taught it last year and just have a lot of thoughts and questions. And Greg, you know, has worked on the medievals. Uh, he studied with Charles Butterworth uh, at the University of Maryland. Uh, so he has a lot of expertise he'll bring to the table. So I think it's going to be great. But yeah, if you're interested, please, please tune in. Uh, hopefully the trailer will be out soon. Awesome. Well, we're both excited for that, and we'll be listening closely to all, all those episodes. Thank you so much uh, again for for being on. Uh, it was a really enjoyable conversation. I think we both got a lot from it. Thanks for having me. <laughs>